Hello and welcome to another Salon exclusive, Lucky You. We want you to be the very first to hear about the books that we are most excited about, so we've created this series of exclusive readings from writers handpicked by us just for you. Just now, we are very excited about the much-anticipated first novel from Douglas Stewart. The book is called Shuggy Bane. It was named one of the most exciting debuts by The Observer in 2020. It's a book I've been excited about ever since I heard of it. It's very familiar to me. It's set in Glasgow in the 1980s, which is a world you know I know about from Maggie and me. But this is fiction, and it's about a wee boy called Shuggy. Well, anyway... Douglas is about to tell you all about it. The thing is, we've got Douglas for our next Salon guest at Salon Live Online on the 26th of June. So I'm going to be sitting there getting very Glaswegian with him. If you'd like to join us, um, maybe we'll put some subtitles on for you. Tickets are at www.theliterarysalon.co.uk and you can also find them on Eventbrite. It's a really beautiful book. It's heartbreaking. It's funny. It's tender. It's just, it's absolutely gorgeous. And if you want to get a taste of his writing, check out his story in The New Yorker. Just go onto The New Yorker website and put in Douglas Stewart. Incredibly, that story was his first published work. I know. Unbelievable. And just a little bit jealous. Shuggy Bain is published by Picador in August. And here's Douglas to tell us a bit more and share an exclusive reading just for you. At its heart, Shuggy Bane is a love story. It's about that sort of special, unsinkable love that children can have for flawed parents who are struggling with addiction. It is a portrait of the Bane family who are struggling to get by in 1980s Glasgow. They are a proud working class family who are trying to make it as the city is disintegrating and decaying around them. We really follow the narrative through Agnes Bane, who is the mother of the family, She is a beautiful woman who models herself on a Glaswegian, Elizabeth Taylor, with dyed ink black hair and gleaming new false teeth. But she's also a woman who is ruled by vanity and pride and sort of consumed by a lot of small wants. She has definitely married the wrong man in the Protestant uh, taxi driver Shugbane. And Shug has been philandering all around the city and using his taxi to sort of roam on the night shift and have congress with different women. As Shug's philandering escalates, Agnes's alcoholism also starts to take root. And in a final betrayal, Shug actually moves Agnes and their three children to a Lanarkshire coal town that is in the process of being dismantled by the policies of Margaret Thatcher. After Shug abandons Agnes and the kids there, we really sort of see how far Catherine, Leek and their youngest child, Shuggy, go to sort of save their mother and and try and return her to sobriety. The book, I think, answers the question of how far would you go to save the person you love the most before you have to save yourself. And it is certainly Shuggy who stays by his mother's side the longest. It is also a hard place for Shuggy to be because he is a young boy in a working man's world who is struggling to come to terms with his own sexuality. And even before he understands what it is and what makes him effeminate or queer, he has been labelled as being no right by the men and the boys around him. And so really it's a portrait of Agnes and Shuggy, these really two tender outsiders who are trying to struggle and get by in this working man's world. The section I'm going to read from now is actually from the heart of the book. 
Following Shug's betrayal of Agnes and her descent into alcoholism, we have really seen how her children, and Shuggy in particular, have tried to be there for their mother and uh, to keep her safe mostly from herself. He is a very watchful, very vigilant, uh, very empathetic uh, young boy, and we are actually about to embark on a period of sobriety for Agnes, a really sustained period of hope. And Shuggy, as a child, uh, can sense that something is changing. After living in this very dark, very tense period for a long time, he can sense that something is changing with his mother. He can feel it uh, most profoundly. He just can't quite yet express it. And we are coming into the, the section where Shuggy starts to notice the change really deeply within himself. Every weekday before the last bell, Shuggy's guts would tighten and he would raise his hand and ask most politely to be excused. Doughface Father Ewan would inwardly curse the little boy who seemed regular as clockwork. At first he would ask the boy to wait, just wait the extra fifteen minutes till the school day was finished. Shuggy, always biddable, would nod with a wince and sit cocked slightly to the side, looking to be in genuine, desperate need. His wincing and huffing would soon start to distract the other children, and the father would acquiesce. Later in the staff room, the soft-middled father would joke about what this miner's diet of boiled cabbage and ground mince might do for the clergy. The polite little boy, the only one who clearly knew the difference between may I and can I, had been getting cramps at a quarter past three almost every afternoon of the school year. Father Ewan had come to set his watch by it. Shuggy, would spend the last minutes of the school day sat on the low toilet. He would take his trousers down, only to be safe, but he came to know it was indigestion. It was the burning bile of anticipation, the rising fear of what might lie at home. Agnes had gotten sober many times before, but the cramps had never really completely gone away. To Shuggy, the stretches of sobriety were fleeting and unpredictable and not to be fully enjoyed. As with any good weather, there was always more rain on the other side. To have marked her sobriety in days was like watching a happy weekend bleed by. When you watched it, it was always too short, so he just stopped counting. The boy could not remember the change in himself. At what point the cramps died away and things became different was unclear. He could remember coming home from school one Friday in November and standing outside the house as he always did. Every small detail told of what lay within. This evening the curtains were drawn tight against the cold and the lamps were on, his stomach lifted in hope. Shuggy opened the front door a crack, just enough so he could hear the hum of the house. He knew what to listen for. Wailing and crying foretold a bad night. She would want to hold him in her arms and tell him stories of the men who had broken her. If there was the sound of country guitars and melancholy singing, then the warm moistness of shit would start to wet his underpants. To hear his mother on the telephone was not always a bad sign. He had to creep in between the front door and the draft door to listen very closely to the tone of her voice, push his ear against the cold dimpled glass and hold his breath. She didn't have to be crying or screaming or slurring her words for the drink to be in her. It could still be there. It made her overly polite, a false Milgai accent full of long syllabled words. Her lips would pull away from her front teeth and she would overuse words like certainly and unfortunately. These were the worst sounds to hear. 
Agnes was mourning her losses but still too far from unconsciousness. She would sit him down and tell him her stories, only this time she would be angry and not sad. With a packet of half-smoked cigarettes beside her, she would glide her finger through the phone book and make him dial the telephone numbers that she read aloud. 5546339 Holding the receiver in his hand, the boy would listen to the chirp chirp and hope that no one would answer. He grew ashen as a voice came on the other line. Hello, said the stranger. Oh, hello. I'm terribly sorry to bother you. Agnes would nod her approval from the armchair. I am looking for someone called Mr. Cam McCallum. Who? asked the voice. Cam McCallum, repeated the boy. He lived in Deniston between 1967 and 1971. He was a bus conductor in the East End, going between George Square and Shettleston. He had a sister named Renee, who married a man named Jock. The voice, confused at this oddly detailed information, would say, Sorry, son, there's no Cam McCallum who lives here. I see. Thank you very much, sir. I am sorry to have bothered you. Agnes would hiss with disgust from the front room and make him phone the next McCallum in the book. It was worse when they found who Agnes was looking for. The man on the other line would say, Who is this? I'm Cam McCallum. What do yous want? The boy's heart would sink. Oh, I see. Could you please just hold on for a minute, Mr. McCallum? I am transferring your call. Agnes's eyebrows raised incredulously. Is that him? The boy would cup his hand over the receiver and nod. He would hand the telephone to her like an obedient secretary, and Agnes would arrange herself as if Mr. McCallum could see her through the phone. With a fresh cigarette between her long fingers, she would lift the receiver to her mouth. You bastard, she hissed as an introduction. Hello, who is this? You dirty fucking whoremaster of a bastard. The man would hang up eventually. They always did. Agnes would take a long draw on her cigarette, then a long pull on the old tea mug. She would stab the redial button on the telephone and smile as it quickly connected her. Don't you hang up on me. Don't you dare hang up on me. Who the fuck is this? Did you think you would get away with it, eh? The things you did to that young lassie, you bad bastard. There's not a bleeding heart in you. Cam McCallum would hang up again, and if he were wise, he would wrench his telephone from the wall. Agnes slid her finger through the phone book like it was a menu, looking for something to fill her hunger. She moved on alphabetically to the very next man who'd wronged her. Brendan McGowan, now wait till I tell you about this scunner. She turned to Shuggy with the receiver crooked under her chin. Losing me was the biggest mistake he ever made. She could sit at the telephone table until it got dark. Then she could sit there in pitch blackness. The end of a lit cigarette was her only light. Shuggy sat next to the electric fire, listening to her roar. He was afraid to switch on any lights, hoping the dark would make her sleepy, worried the light would draw her to him like a moth. With all this in mind, Shuggy crept home from school and listened carefully at the draft door, hoping that she would not be crying or listening to country music or sitting ready for battle at the telephone. But even the hum of silence could set his guts twisting again. He had heard it once, and he had believed in it, the deafening hiss of nothing. 
He had crept into the house to listen closer, believing it was good news, and had let his hands fall from his tight sides. Agnes was there on the floor, in her tight black skirt, in her good winter coat. She was kneeling like she was praying, but the backs of her hands were soft against the linoleum, her head fully in the big white council oven. The sound of nothing had been a trick. The hiss of silence was only the thick gas carrying her away. After that, he'd learned not to trust the quiet. So that was the brilliant Douglas Stewart reading exclusively for you. Shaggy Bane is published on the 6th of August 2020 by Picador and it's available for pre-order now from all good bookshops. Use an indie, use an indie, use an indie, go to an indie, use an indie bookshop. And in the meantime, he's going to be joining me for an exclusive salon um, on the 26th of June. Tickets are available from www.theliterarysalon.co.uk. See you there.